Well, welcome back. Glad you guys are here today. I'd say it's a little bit different standing on a big stage. Looks good though, doesn't it? Yeah, I like it. We were blessed that the school had a production this week, and so we got to have a stage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, last week we started this brand new series called Before Christmas. And last week we read through the Christmas story as we find it in the book of Matthew. Now, there's two places you can find the Christmas story. You can find it in Matthew, and you can find it in Luke. And as we were reading the story last week, we saw an unlikely Christmas person, a guy by the name of Isaiah. Now, some of you are out there going, wait a second, Isaiah, was that one of the shepherd's names or was that like one of the wise men? They had names, right? So, no, no, no. Isaiah was a prophet, right? And he was on the scene before Christmas. In fact, 700 years before Christmas, Isaiah had a prophecy. Now, Isaiah had a prophecy about Christmas, right? In fact, he said that Christmas was going to happen through a virgin, right? And he gave us a promise, and this is what we saw last week, that God would be with us, that his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so last week we talked about that in this Christmas season, whenever we feel incredibly overwhelmed, right, which that can happen so easily as, as we head towards Christmas, that we can have confidence and know that God is with us. Well, today we're going to continue on um, with the Christmas story, and we're going to see a second person who was on the scene long before Christmas ever happened. And he has an incredibly powerful message for us today. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to continue to read the Christmas story together. Now, while you're flipping there or you're waiting for it to show up on the screen, I know how it goes, right? Or maybe you're powering on your phone right now, scrolling to get to it. While we were, while you're getting there, let me just catch you up a little bit in case you weren't here last week. But last week we met a man, his name was Joseph, happens to be Jesus' father. Joseph had a dream, right? And in his dream, an angel came and talked to him, told him Mary was going to have a baby, and that baby's name was to be Jesus, right? We, that's what we focused on. And then right at the end of chapter 1, if you're not careful, you miss what happens because it's really just one verse. And it says this, and it says he called his name Jesus. Boom, there it is. Jesus was born, right? Let's be like claps and applause and amens going on. Right? Jesus was born. Let's try it again. Okay, good. We still got work to do. Okay. Well, with that in mind, let's pick up. Jesus has been born. We start in verse 1 of chapter 2. And like last week, we'll just add a little bit of color commentary along the way as we read the story. It says this in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. All right, hang on for just a second. Matthew has not told us up to this point anything about time and place. The only thing that he's told us is, is that there was a guy named Joseph who came out of this lineage and this heritage, this family tree that included David and included Abraham, right? So we don't know anything else about these people until this moment. So he kind of drops this 
contextual clue in for us. And he says, here's where it's at. You're, you're looking at Bethlehem of Judea, and it's in the time of Herod the king. Now, the book of Luke, which we said earlier, is the other place that has the birth narrative. He kind of fills in the details, right? Now, that may be because he had already read Matthew's copy and knew that Matthew didn't really give any of the details about how they got to Bethlehem, about how any of this came to be, and about all of the events that surrounded the birth. He just kind of said, maybe he was born and then moved on, um, right? And so Luke has all of this. Mark, by the way, who some think was the very first of the Gospels written, he doesn't have anything about the birth narrative. He was just so excited to jump into the story about Jesus changing people's lives that he couldn't hardly even wait. And so we have Luke's that gives us all of these extra details, but Matthew, Matthew doesn't do that. He just says Jesus was born in a city that was other than the city where the king, King Herod, lived. And then he says these guys show up, right? These guys who were the wise men. And here's what they say. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So these wise men, right, they were watching the skies for signs of things that were about to happen. Now this verse, this verse is a lot of fun for coffee shop talk, all right? And by coffee shop talk, I mean you like get to sit down and have some coffee with your friends and talk about all the different theories about some of the things that took place in this verse. Like, for example, who were the wise men? Where did they come from? There's a lot of theories about it. In fact, the best thing that we can tell you is, is that the same word, magi, or magoi in the Greek, right, that's used here, is also used in Daniel when he talks about some people that were there in Babylon that were, that were giving some advice to King Nebuchadnezzar. So only two times in the entire Bible this, is, this was used. And so we have this idea that maybe these guys were from this area, that maybe they were like Chaldeans, and they were traveling here because they were the great kingmakers. And they come in onto the scene and they say, who is the king of the Jews? Now, this is interesting too, because the only person who had ever called themselves king of the Jews up to this point was Herod. He had a self-appointed title that he'd given to himself called King of the Jews. So they walk in, they're like, hey, who's the one who's just been born who's King of the Jews? And he's like, well, I wasn't just born, but uh, yeah, that's me. And they're like, no, 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 we saw a star, right? And he's like, we saw a star? And this is that other place for coffee shop talk because you can read all kinds of amazing theories about what the star alignment was. I think my favorite is, is that the star Regulus, right, which is in the constellation of Leo, which is the lion, right, it went into an alignment with the king star, Jupiter, and with Virgo, right, which is about a virgin or about birth happening. And so that's one theory that's out there about how that star, what the star <laughs> might have been and how they might have followed it. Like I said, for our purposes, what we really need to know is, is that we have a couple of guys who believe so strongly, so strongly in a sign that they had seen that they left and traveled for several months in order to come and to see the king. And so they come to Jerusalem, right, which is where the king's palace is at. 
and they walk in and see the king and they're like hey we heard that you've had a baby actually we saw a sign of it and so we want to worship this baby that's going to be incredible and here's what happened when herod heard this he was incredibly troubled and all of jerusalem with him so here it was herod who doesn't have a baby right he gets this message that there's some other king of the jews now i don't know about you but if i was king and somebody came to anoint a new king that wasn't my child right i would not be excited about that and herod was not excited about that he wasn't excited about that at all in fact herod had a history of taking out his competition he killed his own wife and his own children along the way when they threatened to usurp and take over the throne. And so now you've got these wise men who come in, right? Some scholars think that these guys were the kingmakers. They were there to anoint a new king, and he's like, and all of Jerusalem is troubled with him because here's what they know. Herod's off his rocker. He can do something crazy. And if he does something crazy, it's going to come back on them, right? They can all get wiped out if he does the wrong thing. As a king, he may have the power to kill somebody, but if he kills these guys, they might have a whole army of people going behind them. And so everybody is troubled. And so here's what Herod does. Herod assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them. And he says, where is the Christ to be born? So in other words, Herod grabs everybody he knows, anybody who knows anything about scripture. He says, hey, listen, guys. Tell me what you know. Where is the Christ supposed to be born? Now, for us reading the story, we go, wait a second. How does he know Jesus Christ is the one who's been born? Right? Maybe you've never asked that question. But how in the world does he, like, he asked where the Christ is supposed to be born. So it seems kind of interesting to me that he's asking about Jesus Christ. He's not. What he's asking about is, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Christ is a, the Greek word for anointed one, or the Messiah. And so he goes to all the scholars and he says, listen, I need to know, what does scripture tell us about where the Messiah, the Messiah, is supposed to be born from? And without even batting an eye, right, they come back and they tell him. They say, in Bethlehem of Judea. Because it's been written by the prophet. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Let's pray. God, this is such a, a huge promise and an incredible prophecy that you gave through a man named Micah a long time before Jesus ever came into being in this earth. And the things that we're about to talk about, they still have direct impact on us. 3,000 years after they were written, 2,000 years after the, the, the fulfillment of them, God, I pray that we would hear these things. 
that we would treasure them. And God, that we would share them. Just give you glory and honor in your name. Amen. So last week, as we were walking through the story of Matthew, Matthew's Christmas story, we said that there are five different times, five different times that Matthew either directly quotes or infers a prophecy from the Old Testament. And last week, we looked at the, the first of those, and then today we're going to look at the second direct quote. But before we jump in, I want to remind you a couple things that we said about prophecy last week, because... Prophecy is, well, it, it's a little bit interesting. And so here's one of the things that we said last week. Prophecy has a pattern behind it, all right? And the pattern is, is that there's some sort of a problem that the prophecy comes out during the midst of, right? And in that problem, there is a promise from God about what it is that he's going to do and a provision for how it is that he's going to address the problem. So there's a contextual nature behind each of these prophecies that comes out that there's some sort of a direct fulfillment that happens. But we also said this. We said that prophecy is not linear. Ooh, that was interesting. Prophecy is not linear, right? It's not a A, B equals C sort of a thing, but it's kind of more circular. And really it's more like a sphere and more like an onion that you peel back layers and see that God does it again and peel back another layer and you see it again and peel back. And so there has this kind of a cycle of God continuing to bring a greater fulfillment of the prophecy. So Matthew quotes this text. It's already been fulfilled once. And it had a very specific meaning almost 700 years ago. But I thought we'd look back at this footnote, this moment before Christmas ever was. And this guy who gave a prophecy that had a very specific problem and a very specific promise and a very specific provision and see what it tells us about God and what he has for us before Christmas ever arrives. So here's the prophecy. This prophecy is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Verse 1, verse 1 of this chapter actually gives us a hint into the predicament, the problem that, that they find themselves in. Here's what it reads. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, because siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So here it is. Judah is surrounded by war in all of the countries that are around them. They're surrounded by that again. In fact, if you were here last week, we talked about the split kingdom, right? That after King David, who had united all the kingdoms together, and they were all one gigantic force, that as it went on down through, through his son and his son's sons, that the kingdom began to split. And unlike us, when we had our civil war between the north and the south, and then we reunited together, they didn't. They split into two totally different countries, northern Israel and Judah. Nine and a half of the tribes went north, two and a half of the tribes went south. And so we found that last week, Isaiah, his prophecy was given to Judah's king, King Ahaz, 
and it was about war that was all around and about enemy the northern Israel and their allies that they were coming with that they were coming against Judah and God says to him he says listen know that I'm with you in fact I'm gonna give you a sign that I am with you and King Ahaz instead of listening to that and instead of believing and trusting and having faith in God being with us he decides to have faith in himself and he goes off and he makes an alliance with Assyria instead and just like he just like God through Isaiah had prophesied that those other two kingdoms the enemies that were there were going to fall away in fact they would be totally decimated in 722 they were they were no longer in fact from that point forward in history northern Israel has never existed they were wiped off the face of the earth and so we have this moment where Micah comes in right because instead of being free like God wanted them to be they're now a servant state of Assyria because Ahaz said you know what I know better than God we do that don't we no, it's true and so they are there and Micah comes onto the scene now Micah was a, a prophet around the same time as Isaiah in fact um, Isaiah and he overlap quite a bit in their amount of prophecy and Micah earlier in his book he predicts the fall of Samaria as well but in this moment right here <coughs> Assyria is struggling to get control over all of the region that's around them and then new king King Hezekiah Ahaz's son has been slowly rebelling he's been chipping away at Assyrian rule all around him and all the other countries are starting to notice what's going on and they begin to come and they're like hey Egypt comes and they're like hey Hezekiah do you want to like partner up with us and we'll take on Assyria he doesn't do it and country after country comes and they're like listen we want to and Hezekiah doesn't do it and Micah comes and he gives a warning to Hezekiah and he says listen Hezekiah you need to understand that war is coming it's going to come straight to our front doorsteps in fact you need to understand that you're about to be humiliated right by what's going to happen you're going to have a massive amount of disrespect come towards you but don't give in to the temptation of this and so Hezekiah unlike Ahaz he listens to Micah and he begins to fortify up the city he musters up all the troops that he can get and just as Micah had prophesied Sennacherib comes and he sets up outside of the city even though even though all of Hezekiah's tribute had been paid he'd given the money <coughs> he plundered the temple in order to try to help get everything that he could off to Sennacherib and Sennacherib sets out to destroy them anyways but Jerusalem survives now interestingly I told you that prophecy is like an onion about a hundred years later this prophecy has another fulfillment Zedekiah is king in 596 and in 596 the Babylonian Empire comes in and they remove him as king 
and they humiliate him in front of everybody. And then 10 years later, they send all of Judah into captivity with Babylon. And Micah, in chapter 4, is the first prophet who says, hey, you're going to have to watch out for Babylon because they're going to come take us into captivity. And when he says it, everybody's like, Babylon? Who's Babylon? And they come. And so in the midst of all of this, right, just outside of the city gates where Sennacherib is set up is the small town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is in the crosshairs of everything. And Bethlehem is too small to have sent any sort of troops to go help Jerusalem in the battle. And so you can imagine, right, you've got an enemy out here and you've got your king who you didn't help at all. Because you didn't have any ability to help them. And you're like, we're goners. Right? They've got all kinds of stress because they're in the crosshairs of this. And Micah says this. He gives this promise to them. He says, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. I love this promise. In fact, I almost called the entire series Ancient Christmas because of that line right there about being from ancient of days, right? Because Micah is telling everybody about the first Christmas way before it ever even gets here. He says, listen, listen, God, right, is going to show up. He says, here is when, here's how the Messiah, here's where the Messiah is going to arrive on the scene. And he's going to come from this little town of Bethlehem. This town that was caught between the tension of the battlefield. The town that thought that they were about to be wiped out. And he says to them, no. You know, I think Micah really understood what life is like before Christmas. Right? Before Christmas, I think all of us would agree that life is stressful. Some of us, we just can't wait for Christmas to get here so the stress will end. We're like, oh, when does this chaos ever end? And Micah's like, I get it. Sometimes you feel like Bethlehem who's just caught in the middle, right? You're like, I have to be between these family members for how long? I don't want to send a tribute over there, and I'm certainly not siding with them over there. But most of us, I think if we were to characterize what life is like before Christmas, we'd say it's stressful. It's stressful. And oftentimes, oftentimes I think that we would believe that we're too small to affect any sort of change. In fact, some of you probably remember growing up and being told, when you're a little bit bigger, and then just fill in the blank as to whatever that is, right? When you're a little bit bigger, blank. Now, to be honest with you, I was never ever told when you're a little bit bigger. <laughs> At four, my parents let me ride roller coasters because I was big enough. I don't know what that says about my parents. Some of you, some of you will appreciate this too in the new Frozen 2 movie, right? Olaf has a moment. Right? Where he's singing a song when all chaos is going on around him. And he's like, when I'm a little bit older, I'll understand this. 
right? It's his answer to all of the stress and the chaos that's going on around him. But really, he's just expressing the same sentiment that we all feel when everything's going on around us that we just can't control that anxiety and that stress. And here it is. Micah says, in the midst, in the midst of the anxiety and the stress, there is this provision with a massive promise around it. Massive promise around it. I'm going to read between the lines for just a second. Because when Herod asks all the Bible people where the Messiah was going to be born, it seems to me that they don't even hesitate. That they knew exactly where it was. They didn't run off and go have some sort of conference about it to go, hey, the king wants to know where the Messiah is going to be, so let's like go back and like, you know, consult all of our, our scrolls and figure out. They just had an answer. Now, the first thing God says to Sorry, I was scratching the back of my throat. It is not going away. So they just come back and they start quoting straight from the book of Micah, right? They start telling him about what it was that they say because they knew that Messiah was supposed to come from this seemingly insignificant town. And I love absolutely everything about that. Right? Because it's like God says to Bethlehem, Hey, Bethlehem, I know that you're caught in the crosshairs of everything right now, but just wait. Right? I'm about to put you at the center of everything. And they're like, whoa, hang on. God, we're not really sure we want to be in the crosshairs, and you're about to move us to the center of everything. He's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to put you at the center of everything that I want to do. Now, without a show of hands... How many of you, if I asked you, if you knew the city that Micah was from, could raise your hand and tell me what it is? Yeah, probably not many of you. Even if I told you the name of the city whenever we first got started with everything, the likelihood of any of you remembering it as you come back next week, not very big. But then, then you get to Bethlehem, right? And all of us remember Bethlehem because it's a totally different story. By the way, by the way, let me just help us to, to frame an idea about how small Bethlehem was. I told you that they couldn't send any troops to go help with the war that was going on as he was fortifying everything. Because here's how small Bethlehem was. They were a town. No, I mean, they were probably like a small village, right? Of like a thousand people at the most. Maybe 200 homes is what Bethlehem was. We have neighborhoods. We have neighborhoods that have more than 200 homes in them, right around us. There are, in the five miles around here, 20,000 people living. But God says, but God says to, the, to Bethlehem, he says, listen, I love to use the insignificant. Right? God loves to use the insignificant. You ever felt insignificant? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have. Bethlehem was insignificant at best. In fact, their very name, Bethlehem, meant house of bread. 
right? And then let's just add on because they have this other word, which I know none of us can pronounce, but Ephrathah, right? And I probably pronounced it wrong. It's okay, all right? When you get to hard words, just say hard word number one, hard word number two. It's okay. But this word, it means fruit, right? Or fruit bearing or fruit full. So literally, right? Micah says that Bethlehem is the fruitcake of Christmas. The fruitcake of Christmas. I've never met anybody who likes fruitcake, have you? <laughs> you ever felt like you're a fruitcake? Lorraine well, said no, but <clears throat> her husband's moving away from her a little bit just in case something happens. You ever felt like God could never use someone like you? Someone is insignificant. God could never use somebody like you to do something with him. If that's the case, then I want to tell you today that God has you right in the right spot. Because God has a pattern of using people who think that they're insignificant to do significant things. To make significant statements. There's a guy in the Bible's name is Joseph, right? He's the last of the brothers of Israel who becomes the really the father of the nation that takes his name. The 12 sons that he has are the 12 tribes. Joseph's actually number son number 11. He has a dream from God one day about that he was going to be elevated and that God had a plan for him. His brothers responded by sending him off into slavery, sold him. And for the next several years, he goes from one situation of slavery and begins to look like it's going to turn a little bit, and he goes into an even worse situation of slavery. And then God elevates him to become the second in charge in Egypt. And God uses Joseph to save his entire family as they were dealing with a drought. How about David? Ever heard about a little boy named David? One day, the, 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 the anointer of kings, his name was Samuel, was out looking for a king to be after Saul. Saul was not following what God wanted him to do. And so God says, listen, Samuel, I need you to go find me a new king. Samuel says, great. He goes to the house of Jesse. And Jesse brings out all of his sons. And Samuel goes, man, these guys look like incredible kingly material. So he goes past the oldest. No. Next. No. 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 On down the line. Samuel's like, well, this is where God's sending. What's going on? I don't understand how none of your sons are. And he looks at Samuel and he, or Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, well, do you have any other sons? He says, well, yeah, I got one that's out in the fields of Bethlehem watching the sheep. And he's like, well, I asked you to bring all of them. Like his dad didn't even care enough for him to be there to like have the king anointer there. Right? He's like, listen, David, you're so insignificant in our family. I need you to stay with the sheep. And so he calls him in, and he comes in, and God says, that's the one that I want. Same David, 
A little bit later, brothers are on the front line of battle, right? King Saul is there on the front lines of battle. And David comes bringing some food to him. And out walks this giant, Goliath. And calls out. He calls out everybody that's there on the other side. And he's like, you guys are wimps and you're dogs. And you can't even lick my boots. And I'm going to wipe you up. I mean, you think of whatever insult you want to say. And he was hurling them out. And David's like, what are you guys doing? King Saul was afraid. And David walks out without even any armor. Just takes five stones. And he does something significant. You say, oh, well, Charles, those are Bible stories, right? I mean, that's, that's how Bible stories are supposed to work. Okay, fine. Let me give you part of my story. I didn't say yes to coming to start a church here in Australia after I knew that I was an incredible speaker. It's a good thing. I probably would never gotten here. <laughs> But at 14 years old, God said, i got a plan for your life. Will you surrender your life to me to do whatever it is that I want to do? At 14, I was nothing. I was insignificant at best. And at 14 years old, you know what they were doing right here in Australia? They were building their very first homes when I was 14 years old. And at 14, when I said yes to God, God had a plan about starting and building his church right here. I didn't know. I had no idea what his plan was. I still don't know what it is. I'm just trying to be faithful and obedient and be insignificant so that God can use me. But that's not... That's not the promise. That's just the provision that God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to do something significant through you who's insignificant, but I've got a greater promise for you. So let's read on. Starting in verse 3. He says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. <coughs> And he, that's the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then check it out. Here it is. And they shall dwell secure. For he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. There it is. There's the promise of this prophecy. <coughs> He shall be our peace. As Luke records the story, he has angels that come to some shepherds. And as the angels come to declare the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, Luke says that the, the skies opened up and it was filled with heavenly hosts who sang one message. Here's what they heralded. Listen. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and goodwill towards man. They understood the promise that was being given to us in Jesus. Jesus 
was peace. But I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to think, oh, Jesus ushered in peace, right? And peace on earth. And so, therefore, there should be no more wars, and there should be no more famine, and there should be no more sickness, and no more strife, and no more problems. Listen. If that was the case, then we would all be looking around going, then Jesus didn't really come. Right? Because Jesus came into a Judah that was being governed by Rome. In fact, that same Rome is the one that 33 years later placed him on a cross and crucified him. Peace doesn't make our problems go away. Let me say that again. Peace doesn't make our problems go away. Jesus didn't come to this world in order to magically make all of our problems go away. Even if we wish that that were true sometimes, it's not why he came. And it's not what peace is. You see, peace, peace is strength and courage to endure those problems. In fact, peace is really so much more than that. Let me just stack peace on top of what we talked about last week, last week's promise of Emmanuel, of God with us. But here's the problem with that promise for a second. Sometimes, in fact, I would say most of the time, right, we struggle to know that God is with us. You feel me on that one? Right? We struggle to know that God is with us. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't taste him. But God says, listen, you can feel me. Because peace is a feeling. Now don't get this confused with faith. Faith is not a feeling. Right? Faith is an, is an action, right? And our faith isn't based on a feeling. But it certainly is confirmed by it. It's confirmed by that feeling of peace. That feeling of knowing that even though I don't know, everything's going to be okay. Peace is that warmth. It's that security that we feel. Peace is not something that we decide. That's why a peace tree is always fake. You can't decide peace. Peace is a gift. It's a gift that's given to me. Now, I'm not really generally a touchy-feely kind of a, a guy on stuff. I, I don't really talk that way about my faith very often. But I know, without a shadow of a doubt, <clears throat> that God is with me because of the peace that's in my life. I don't have to get rattled. In fact, I don't get rattled by very much. Because of the peace that God has given me. 
the peace that's inside of me. So not only is he God with us, but he is God, our peace. In fact, Isaiah later on says he is our prince of peace. So let me just bring this home for a second, right? At the end of the day, your stature, how important you think you are, doesn't matter to God. Or how unimportant you think you are, doesn't matter to God. In this moment right here in the story, we have all of these different people. Some of them that think that they're really important. Some of them that understand where they stand in the line of importance. And one person who is really important. And of those two sets of kings, only one of them experienced peace. Only one of them had the gift of peace given to them. The other one was anxious, nervous, stressed. And I think Micah and then Matthew and quoting Micah are saying to us the same thing. There's only one answer to our stress and anxieties. And that's peace. And that's peace. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you sent Jesus to be our peace, to give us a gift of peace, to combat all of the stress and anxieties that fill my life, to confirm for me that you are the God who is with me, that even though I can't see you or touch you or taste you, that God, I can feel you because of your peace peace that you give to me and the peace that is fruitful in my life. You know, maybe you're sitting out there right now and you say, you know what, Charles? I've never heard anybody talk about Jesus that way before. I've never heard it being offered as a gift of peace and I can use peace in my life. that's you at the end of the service I'm going to be in the back and I'd like to talk to you about it I'd like to help you to know how it is that you can accept the peace that God offers through Jesus how he can be your peace how he can confirm to you that God is the God who is not far away but a God who is with us God I pray that you would be glorified Amen.